Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, Indonesia has been to the polls for the first round of its elections. As we speak, the early signs point to the new president being Prabowo Subianto, a former special forces commander from the Suharto era who commanded troops in East Timor. Well, this was democracy on a hugely impressive scale with 5 million election workers facilitating the votes of as many as 200 million Indonesians across 18,000 islands. It's the largest Muslim nation in the world, a G20 member, the headquarters for ASEAN. Indonesia is known for its independent, non-aligned foreign policy, and it's being aggressively courted by other powers such as Japan, China, Australia, and of course, the United States. And it's crucially regarded as one of the world's more successful democratic stories, having emerged from the brutal and corrupt Suharto dictatorship of the 1990s. The outgoing president, Joko Widodo, seemed to embody that process. The former furniture salesman, a fan of Metallica, he was the first president not to emerge from the country's elites. Yet in this election, he supported the candidacy of Prabowo Subianto, his arch rival from the 2019 election. So what do these provisional results mean for Indonesia's place in the world, its foreign policy and the health of its huge democracy? Joining me down the line from Jakarta is Burhanuddin Mutadi, Executive Director of Indonesian polling organization Indikator Politik Indonesia, and he's also a professor of political science. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Bronwyn. Thank you for having me. It's really great to have you. Also joining me is Dewey Fortuna Anwar, a former advisor to Indonesia's vice president and chair of the Indonesian think tank, the Habibi Center. Welcome, Dewey. Thank you very much, Branwith. Really great to have you. And finally, at Chatham House itself is Ben Bland, the director of our Asia Pacific program. Welcome. Thanks, Roman. Great to be talking about Indonesia. Great. Well, Ben, you've spent a great deal of time on Indonesia, as has everyone on this podcast Perhaps you can take us into the state of play with the elections. Yep. So the elections broadly ran smoothly. And while it's going to take a month to tally all these results from across the thousands of islands, there are very reliable, unofficial quick counts, which point to a clear victory for Prabowo Subianto, uh, a former general. But he's also been defense minister for the last five years in Jokowi, the current president's cabinet following these two bitterly fought elections when, you know, there were sort of head-to-head combat between these two characters who actually before, in a previous guise, had also been political allies. So it speaks to the kind of head-turning nature of Indonesian politics uh, and the promiscuous political nature of these leaders that they can join alliances, break apart, move between different parties. And that can make it hard to make sweeping judgments about what the election results mean, particularly because we're still waiting for clarity on the legislative elections, which is going to be quite important to how the governing coalition looks in parliament. Take us really into the basics. Why is Jokowi now supporting the man he was fighting five years ago, electorally, I should say. Well, as I said, they'd they'd been political allies in an earlier guise. That's important to understand. They hadn't always been at at loggerheads. I think it comes down to Jokowi's desire in 2019 after Prabowo lost the last election. Um, His supporters were literally running riot on the streets of Jakarta. And Jokowi wanted to kind of quell um, the opposition force, which was quite strong, coming from Prabowo. So he did that in a very sort of Javanese, typical way of bringing his enemy closer, putting him in his cabinet. 
Um, so that was the first step. I think the second thing was that Jacoby was looking around for a way to maintain his legacy. There's a constitutional two-term limit. Some of the people around Jacoby wanted to change the constitution, but I think that wouldn't have been acceptable to Indonesian voters. So as he thought, what can he do? He, I think he realized that tying up with Prabowo uh, was a good way forward. And how could he seal this deal and bring some trust into this relationship? Well, Prabowo appointed Jokowi's son as his vice presidential candidate. So I think it's a combination of, of Jokowi looking to maintain his legacy. And also Prabowo realized that his previous sort of tough guy, strongman campaign was successful in winning him 40, 45% plus of the vote. But I think he could tell that if he wanted to get over that magic 50% mark, he needed something else. So by allying himself to Jokowi, who's one of the most popular second-term presidents anywhere in the world, probably in global history, I think he realized that that would be enough. His tough guy image plus the continuity connection to Jokowi to get him over the line. So it was really mutual self-interest that got them to this point. Thank you. Clear. I'm not sure simpler, but definitely clear. Dewey, just tell us why these elections matter, what this result is going to mean. Well, elections always matter. And uh, and this is not just about a change of government, but a reaffirmation of our democracy. But unfortunately, uh, Ben has explained the mutual needs of these two leaders. Uh, Prabowo needed to stick as close as possible to Jokowi, you know, to get that mantle of legitimacy and, and popular support. And Jokowi wants, you know, to ensure that he can continue to have influence. And people would think, wouldn't he have influence better by supporting his own party's candidate, you know, who is Ganjar Pranowo from PDIP? Exactly. And obviously, you know, I mean, that is the logic. In most countries, you know, a Labour uh, candidate, you know, a Labour prime minister in the UK would naturally try to, <laughs> to support his own candidate instead of going to the, to the other side. But, you know, for Jokowi, obviously the calculation is that he's a guest put it that way, you know, and not always a very welcome guest in PDIP. Uh, Megawati had been quite grudging in her support and continued to remind Jokowi, you know, that he owed her, you know, that, that position and that, you know, he's just a party functionary. And maybe he calculated that Jokowi would not really be able to control the right. party or, or to really exert influence. So we've got these really intricate calculations, but if Prabowo is the victor, what will he do with it? For Indonesia now, I mean, the international community, yeah. like you, Romwen, you know, you emphasize Prabowo's dark past, you know, in New Order, the, during the New Order government, uh, his role in uh, Istimos and so on. But for us in Indonesia now, uh, who have been asleep throughout most of the Jokowi presidency, despite what Ben talked about, man of contradictions, you know, despite the fact that outsiders have warned Indonesia of Indonesia's democratic regression, uh, during Jokowi's period, a lot of Indonesian media and civil society liked Jokowi so much. They have been basically quite uncritical of Jokowi. The the fact of the matter is that the criticism is now about not fear of Prabowo subverting Indonesian democracy, but now a real anger amongst intelligentsia, at least, of Jokowi really subverting Indonesian democracy using the uh, his influence in the constitutional court to overturn a rule that someone who is not yet 40 cannot really run for president, vice president. His son, Gibran, is only 36. And that was made, uh, the, the, the ruling was made by the uncle, the chief justice and uncle by marriage. You know, this is a clear conflict of interest and there was ethical question, but this continues. Yeah, that, that is, I think the world would agree that is a clear conflict of interest and he does appear to have done it. Yeah, and, and, and now also the state mobilization of resources so if you talk about free and fair elections, 
the casting and the ballot itself is nice and peaceful. But the process before that, I see, a lot of us see that it's really a return of the playbook of the Sohatu period. Mobilization of the bureaucracy, the military, the police, downright intimidation in some cases, and the politicization of social aid where, you know, uh, you give assistance to the poor and then you say, you know, you vote for Prabowo and uh, Gibran. So for us, the focus is, you know, not how much Prabowo will subvert Indonesian democracy, but the fact that, you know, Indonesian democracy by this election is actually in a very pretty uh, poor shape. Right. So you've made a very good case for that and for why people are very concerned uh, about that. But I wonder if you could just explain what Prabowo is like, what people who've never seen him on television or anything should make of him? I don't know personally very well. I've met him a number of times. And uh, the first time uh, I met him, uh, he recommended that I read a book called The Lord of the Rims. I have heard of it. Uh, that was during the heyday of the Sato period. And that was during the, the fear of the red peril, the Chinese are coming, you know. So that was during the new order, as you know, China was a bogeyman. And the army in Indonesia has this DNA of fearing the left on the one hand and the right on the other. You know, their, their historical enemy has always been the communists and the Islamists. And the suspicions of China ran deep. And if you remember during the elections 2014 and 2019, Prabowo stood up as someone who is such a fiery nationalist, a hyper-nationalist, who was extremely critical of the weakness of Indonesia that was prey to foreign exploitations. And he lambasted Jokowi's over-dependence on China. He has changed under Jokowi because uh, whether it's deep-seated, whether it's tactical, mm. we don't know, because he stands now on a platform of continuation of Jokowi's policy. And that means continuing all those major infrastructure projects, all of the areas where China is the major investor, like, you know, in the downstreaming railways and things like that. So we'll have to see, you know, on the one hand, he says he will continue. On the other, whether he will also become much more, again, cognizant of this fear of foreign domination, particularly yes. China's economy becoming too prominent. So we, we still have to wait and see. And, and the question is, you know, he owes Jokowi the presidency. But at the end of the day, once he's elected and sworn into office, he's his own president. And no mm. sitting president will want to be seen that he's simply a stooge a pawn of for former president because that will not be in his dignity and also probably not acceptable, uh, you know, to, to his constituents, uh, to a lot of his supporters. So he'll probably want to have his own stand and what that will be, you know, that's anybody's guess. I still want to get to this question of if Prabowo is victorious in this election, is it, if you like, further concern? No, uh, actually, I, I tend to agree with Ben in his foreign affairs uh, uh, article where he's a bit downbeat that Indonesia's democracy is quite resilient in when faced with a strong man who wants to subvert it, who has an, a clear indication of wanting to subvert that. There will be resistance and also institutions in place. But what, what Indonesian democracy is not that resilient is when we are not faced by a strong man, but faced by somebody who's nice and whom we trusted. Now that the um, the Indonesian intelligentsia is alert and awake again, having a joke a, a probo presidency, if he had been president from the very beginning, we would not have been asleep. Burhanuddin right. and myself, you know, we not have been <laughs> complacent about this. Right. So in this sense, you know, 
there will not be a blank check for Prabowo, put it that way, in the way that we have given Jokowi a blank check and allowed him. Yeah. But Hanudin, what do you make of this argument? I'm still trying to push us towards the question of whether we should be worried about what Prabowo might now do. So I know and I understand that basically this is a very difficult time for Indonesian democracy, especially after the election of Prabowo, at least based on an official uh, result uh, of quick count. But I think democracy in Indonesia will not easily regressing back to the new order era because, you know, negative sentiment towards Suharto is still strong, especially among the middle class. I agree with Ben observation in foreign affairs saying that although some checks and balance have been eroded on Jokowi's watch, ancient democracy in other ways remain resilient. A vibrant civil society sector, investigative uh, media outlet, yeah, Tempo magazine, for example, and the country decentralized system now helps restrain the president power. So I think if Prabowo, for example, try to revive Suharto, it will receive public resistance from students, from NGO, from campuses, which will disrupt the political stability of his government. Not to mention if we look at back, you know, several of Suharto children has tried to revive Suharto New Order Nostalgia by establishing political parties and always fail to gain popular traction to enter the parliament. So I think, you know, it's not easy. Of course, we will have lots of difficulties in some democracy under Prabowo government, but it is not easy for him to revive new order era, you know, in his government. Ben, take us, just for the sake of people listening to this who don't know ver perhaps very much about Indonesia, but they might know, for example, that the fall of Suharto in 1998 was a turning point. And then the transition to democracy has generally been perceived as a success. What should they make of this now? We've been discussing the concerns about the existing government and what it's done. Um, there are self-serving measures that might be seen to undermine democracy. And then we have these concerns about the apparent winner, the next one. So how would you put it? How concerned should we be? I think it's because there's a real concern outside and there's a real concern inside Indonesia. I mean, like like Dewi and, and Bohanuddin were saying, I think Prabowo's victory has sort of triggered a, a lot of worries, but partly because of Prabowo's track record, you know, in the long past, and he was married to, to one of Suharto's daughters. But I think it's also about the kind of leader he's been in the democratic era. But against that, we have to acknowledge Prabowo has been active in the democratic arena. He's fought elections, he's lost elections, but then people around him have also said they want to get rid of direct elections. Ironically, he's now become president through direct elections. So he's quite an, an enigmatic, curious figure. And he has tried to reinvent himself a bit in this campaign as more of a cuddly, a grandfatherly figure. He's turned down the dial on the sort of tough guy nationalist rhetoric a bit, although that's still there. So I'm not sure what Proboa we're going to get. When I was in Jakarta recently, talking to people, even people around him, sort of, they'll say, oh, he's mellow with age, but then you're not sure if they're just saying that to soft pedal him or, or if they really believe it. And he probably doesn't know, right? Like a lot of people who've dreamt of the presidency of their country um, since they were probably quite, quite young, you know, there's a theoretical presidency and being in power. A surprisingly large group of people, it turns exactly. out. Exactly. Uh, but as, you know, as the UK found with Boris Johnson, when they actually get there, they may not know what to do with it. Um, and, you know, I think Proboa as defence minister found governing quite hard. You might have expected that he would have massively increased the power and effectiveness of the Indonesian military. 
But I don't think there's been any clear, significant improvement, to be honest, um, in Indonesia's force posture or the organization and effectiveness of its military and defense uh, ministry. So going on the recent track record, I think he'll find governing hard. And as um, as, as Buhanuddin and Dewi said, I think civil society in Indonesia is now sort of on guard about Prabowo and the messiness of the Indonesian system, which is often a frustration when people want sort of good, positive reforms. I think in a way that can also be something that can slow down any efforts to bring in sort of bad steps. But, you know, this is a real battle. Like every democracy is a living, breathing thing. And you can talk about backsliding and democratic recessions. That tends to make it sound like people have no agency, right? Like it's just elites or some outside force that takes democracy away from people. But it's really down to how much people value it. I think the other question we have to engage with, I'd be interested to hear what Buhanuddin has to say about this is, well, we have to accept almost 60% of Indonesians voted for Prabowo. So why is that? You can't take away the fact that he does have a clear democratic legitimacy now. And it's interesting to think about why that is rather than just bemoan his victory. Buhanuddin, what do you think on that particular point? Why did so many people apparently vote? And I'm saying apparently because we're just getting the results, but it does look like 60%. So basically, Prabowo use or benefit from Jokowi's coattail effect uh, because Jokowi was so popular. So Prabowo's commanding lead in the poll, I think mostly because of Jokowi's full-fledged endorsement since 2023. You know that Jokowi is so popular, almost 80% of Indian people are happy with him. So what I'm saying is that uh, Prabowo won the election not because he sells so hard though. He sells, uh, you know, Jokowi in many, many times. And if we look at his background, for example, you know, since 2019, when he joined Jokowi's cabinet, Prabowo somewhat changed. He is more emotionally stable and is directly involved in government affairs. But of course, Prabowo is still Prabowo. <laughs> Even though he portrays himself as Jokowi's successor in many times, he still retains his basic contrast with Jokowi. And Prabowo will never be at ease doing Prusukan or impromptu visit to the constituent, unlike Jokowi. And Jokowi is more domestically oriented, of course, while Prabowo is more outward oriented. But as Ben mentioned, almost 60%. This is the question I'm asking you. Why did 60% of people vote for him? If we look at the numbers based on exit poll Bronwyn, almost 70% of those people who voted for Prabowo yesterday are basically those who voted for Jokowi 2019. So he just only rely on 40% of his vote based on his old supporters because uh, more than uh, 50% of those who voted for Prabowo Sandi 2019 already switched to Anis. That's an important point that it's the same people, but I'm asking you why they voted for him. What was the attraction? Yeah, as I indicated earlier, Jokowi tried to you know, switch his supporters to uh, vote for Prabowo. So since there is a difficult situation, difficult affairs between, uh, between Jokowi and Megawati, uh, 2023, Jokowi tried to look at the option by nominating Prabowo, and then he tried very hard to influence his supporters not to vote for Ganjar, but uh, supported Prabowo, and it works. For example, in Central Java, this is the stronghold of PDAP. Uh, based on the 
quick count, 53% of Central Java people uh, voted for Prabowo. Even in Bali, where 99% of people there voted for Jokowi 2019, now 54% of Balinese voted for Prabowo. It's very, <laughs> very strange. Yeah. <laughs> Even 13% of minority people uh, 2014-2019 overwhelmingly supported uh, Jokowi 99%, 98%. But now, most of them voted for Prabowo. So I yeah. think this is the effect of Jokowi. Okay, uh, thanks very much indeed for that. Now, Ben mentioned at one point um, Indonesia's foreign policy. And let's turn to our second topic, which is Indonesia and its place in the world. Dewey, I wonder if you could take us into this, just a bit more about whether the new government is likely to change the way Indonesia positions itself. Foreign policy, like in any big countries, uh, not a major topic for elections. Most people are more concerned about economic issues. Now, just to come back, when you kept up, you kept pushing Burhanuddin, you know, why, why is it, you know, that people voted for Prabowo? Joko is popular. Why is Joko popular? Because he, is the co- he has the common touch. He really addressed the bread and butter issues, you know, social welfare, universal healthcare, education, you know, cash benefits for the poor. So, so they, they love him and, and they continue to believe. Okay, coming, coming to foreign policy, there's not, I, I uh, uh, believe that there'd be more continuity than change in foreign policy direction. Mm. Uh, Indonesia's foreign policy uh, has a very strict framework that is, is uh, in fact enshrined in the Foreign Relations Act as well, that Indonesia's foreign policy is based on a free and active foreign policy doctrine. It's non-aligned times, you know, so Indonesia will not suddenly enter into any military alliances, for example. And it's all, as always tried now, it's not a passive non-alignment or neutrality. It's much more active. It's now, I, in fact, use the words hedging, especially when it comes to relations with the US and China, trying to maximize benefits while mitigating risks at the same time. So engaging China for economic reason, for example, but at the same time, at the same time, also trying to diversify, uh, you know, so that Indonesia does not become too dependent on any one sources. For security reasons, particularly for, for example, military procurements, Indonesia still mostly looks to the West. Indonesia has uh, increases bilateral military exercises with the US, for example. Now it involves not just the two countries, but also involves so many other countries in the Indo-Pacific, including all of the Quad countries, like India, Japan, and, and Australia. If there, I can say three things about Indonesia's foreign policy. You know, all the candidates, and now you know, Prabowo uh, 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 has emphasized you know commitment to the free and active foreign policy. Secondly, foreign policy is considered to be a very important tool for uh, mm. assisting in Indonesia's economic development. And thirdly, foreign policy is very important to ensure you know regional stability and also Indonesia's place in the world. Now, Jokowi has not been that interested personally in playing a regional, let alone a global role. So he has let the foreign minister to play a more active role in the global stage, while Joko himself is much more interested on areas which is primarily economic. He would attend multilaterals like APEC and G20, and, and of course ASEAN summits. But otherwise, he prefers a bilateral because that's where you can negotiate deals. That's really interesting. Yeah, I imagine Prabowo, who is a much more internationalist, uh, will want to play, will want to be a more activist, a more hands-on president, uh, not just uh, let everything be decided in terms of 
the foreign policy at large, you know, to the uh, foreign ministry. Thanks very much for taking us just that, that bit into the future with what he might do with it. Ben, can you just describe again in sort of basic terms what people mean when they say Indonesia has a non-aligned foreign policy? Well, it's, as I say, in Indonesia, they talk about sort of independent and active. Yes. But yeah, it's often described as being non-aligned. And Indonesia is a member of the non-aligned movement. It just means that Indonesia doesn't believe in formal alliances, military treaties with, with other nations, and it's determined to keep its sort of freedom of action in the world. And this stems from sort of Cold War history, um, you know, where as the world divided, Indonesia wanted to stay out of it. And at various points, it was sucked in. And that often led to very violent ructions in Indonesian society. So it's partly about the role Indonesia wants to play in the world. It's partly about the desire to sort of stop foreign entanglements from, you know, tearing apart the, you know, the sometimes delicate fabric of Indonesian society. Mm. And it's then courted by lots of other powers uh, in the region and must pick its way through the US-China rivalry. How has it been doing that, in your view? I think it's broadly done a, a good job. I think under Jokowi, as, as Dave was saying, there's been a sort of very mercantilist attitude that, that foreign policy is basically about getting trade and, and investment, which is yeah. not unlike a lot of Tory governments in the UK in, in, in some ways. Um, so he's really had that push. I think that's brought him just de facto closer to China because it's been China that's been turning up with a lot of big investment projects. They built a high-speed rail um, connection between Jakarta and Bandung, a lot of investments into Indonesia's mineral processing industry, which is something that the president has had a really big focus on. So I think there's almost been the start, I'd only say the start of almost like a path dependency with China because of kind of the fact that China has what Indonesia wants. Meanwhile, the thing that the U.S., can offer economically, which often is market access uh, for all sorts of US domestic reasons, it's not willing to offer to any country. So I think there's been some sort of slippage there. But I do think that, um, you know, Prabowo himself as defense minister, the foreign minister and Jokowi as well, they have been keen to make sure that Indonesia doesn't move too far. So when it came to the the BRICS, this China-led grouping expanding, Indonesia decided not to join that. And Jokowi is actually keener for Indonesia to join the OECD. So there's still this desire to find a balance. I think the challenge under Prabowo will be his character, because as, as Bohanuddin said, Prabowo is still Prabowo at the end of the day. So I think you'll find someone who's more energetic, as Dewey was saying, but also much more unpredictable. And we've seen evidence of that. So at the Shangri-La Dialogue, a big regional defense conference in Singapore last year, Prabowo sort of unexpectedly announced a peace plan uh, for Ukraine, which not only had he not talked to the Russians or the Ukrainians or others about, he hadn't spoken to the Indonesian foreign ministry or the rest of his government about. And I think technically, you know, negotiations on peace in foreign countries is probably not a defense ministry question first and foremost. So I think that's a little foretaste of what you can expect. Prabowo will want to get involved and he's a bit of a maverick. So while he won't want to necessarily shift those settings that we talked about, which are really important for Indonesia, on any individual issue, I think we might see him go in all kinds of different directions. With that, we are going to have to uh, leave this subject, a fascinating subject. I'm very glad to be able to turn to it. Big thank you to my guests, Ben Bland, Berhanuddin Mutadi, and Dewey Fortuna Anwar. Do follow them all on Twitter or X. Their details will be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or major platforms, as well as through our social media. So please do like, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. And to read more from all our experts or find out more about the many events we have on these same subjects, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, where you can also find the work of our Asia-Pacific program. 
Goodbye from me, Broman Maddox. See you next week.